coordination and sound. Beautiful to stimulate around the eyes. Greatest and greatest wellness trends, treatments, and experience. Work that Magnesium is naturally found in foods like. This is the Well and Good podcast. Tune in to find the wellness that fits your frequency. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hi, and welcome to the Well and Good podcast. I am Sinikiwe Stephanie DeLuweo creative director and founder of NIA. NIA is an organization that lies at the intersection of social justice and well-being in order to disrupt the status quo of who gets to be mentally and physically well. For the next few weeks, I will be filling in for Taylor as host with a series of conversations with authors that I love and books that are must-read. When I thought about who I wanted to interview for the series, I was really excited to talk to folks whose work I value and that has supported me personally on my journey to being mentally, physically, and spiritually well. In this third installment of our summer reading series, I chat with Ebony Janice Moore about her book, All the Black Girls Are Activists. Ebony Janice will take you to church as she delves into the power of eschewing respectability politics as Black women how womanism versus feminism is a better look and why being a mean black girl will never get you where you think it might. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for listening. I've been wanting you to write a book since I met you. I'm like, why doesn't this girl have a book yet? Um, And so I'm so excited that your book is here and I've gotten a chance to read it. And I want to start out talking about womanism Mm -hmm. and why you defer to womanism over feminism. 
Yes, yes, yes. Womanism is a sociopolitical, spiritual, religious tool used to center Black women's experiences really in all things. I I actually came to womanism through theology. I have a super Christian background and um, I was in the midst of a theological shift. And like when I say theological shift, I mean like questioning if Jesus was even a thing for me at all. I was attending still this church and I was in the in the closet about this theological shift. Nobody knew this. So I'm still like preaching, serving in ministry, everything. Nobody knew that I was like, question mark. And so I get a call this particular weekend. This is years ago. Um, I was still in my 20s. And the elder of the church, uh, the, the, this was my ex-boyfriend's mother. Um, she says, I want you to come up to the church. There's somebody here that you need to hear preach. I get to the church and Dr. Renita Weems was there preaching. And Dr. Renita Weems is actually known as one of the first generation womanist theologians. In fact, she helped to create to create the canon of womanist theology. Um, so I'm hearing Dr. Renita Weems preach and I'm just sitting there like, oh, I never have been centered my Black femme experience has never in my life been centered in a sermon. I never felt like any pastor, preacher, leader, even when I had heard other Black women preach, uh, Black women in the U.S., you know, preach very often. I won't just say in the U.S., Christianity, you know, a, a global white supremacist society, which, you know, infiltrates contemporary Christianity the the preachment is very white male centered even from many black women preachers that I had heard prior to Dr. Renita Weems preaching so you could be at a all black church with black women preaching talking to all black women and still the black femme experience is not necessarily being centered and so that was very profound for me and from that from that moment forward, I really in my just deep dive of who she was and what did she know that I didn't know, that was really kind of the beginning of my introduction to womanism. And so I came from this theological perspective, but womanism prior to Black women theologians taking on that name, womanism is a term coined by Alice Walker in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. It's a four-part definition. It's very poetic prose, you know, but the what really resonated for me is how black and spiritual and deep and you know I didn't have this language then but now I would say you know a little witchy you know just it's a very beautiful definition and the last part of it womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender is why I identify as a womanist that I myself see womanism as a deeper shade of purple to feminism, to uh, that isn't that isn't to knock feminism because obviously, particularly a lot of Black women do still identify as feminist, but womanism felt like this very, this very intentional naming that um, that Black women who decided to call themselves womanist um, that Black women took on, and and because there is the spiritual, you know more than just the socio-political, there is the spiritual element too that comes with womanism. It felt very important for me to call myself that when I when I came into the knowing of it. I'm 
also just curious though, because women is in posits that you love black women, right? Platonically or romantically, but I just want to keep it a buck. There are a lot of not so nice black women out there. And this notion of black women being mean, I feel is so fraught that people don't even really talk about it. Like we'll talk about it amongst one another, but it's not really talked about on a wider scale. You know, it's kind of like that. We got to keep it, keep it in the house conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious how you feel about why maybe black women are often mean to other black women and how maybe you've dealt with it. If it's come up for you at all. Yeah, of course. I've had black women be mean to me. <laughs> of course. Um, I I believe that black women behave in that way because overall we have very little power socially. And so if you have no one else to oppress, <laughs> then you, you just oppress, oppress yeah. each other. <laughs> I think about the kind of hazing, even even in the womanist circle that I would consider myself a part of. There are some elders, there are some of my contemporaries, my age mates, who call themselves womanist. And in my own defining of kindness or nice or sweet, they don't align with that. And again, that's my definition of kindness, nice, sweet, right? They don't align with that. And I I do really feel like a, a major part of that is because some of what I have even heard on my own journey in academia and, you know, from um, a pub, as a pub, public scholar is you didn't have to go through what I had to go through, you know, that kind of thing. And so it really is the unfortunately using the same tools as the oppressor to try to make some kind of space for yourself. And so I, I'm both about that. You know, I'm kind of both about everything like that's ashy. And also I have deep empathy for it, you know, cause I, I see the trauma of that kind of behavior. You know, I see it and, and also that's ashy, you know, and so I have to have deep empathy for it and also real boundaries for myself and so the last part of your question, how do I navigate that? I didn't have this language until very recently, but this is the way that I would say that I have operated. I'm only having conversations with people who want to have the same conversation as me. And that's it. You know, I, I'm not interested in trying to wrangle, wrestle, or convince people to be in discussion with me to be having the same discussion as me, to be saying the same thing as me. And that doesn't mean that I can't be in conversation with people who disagree with me, but at the very least, are we in the same conversation? And, you know, a part of that conversation for me looks like, you know, mutual respect and um, kindness is very important to me. My grandmother who was, you know, without the language, the first womanist that I ever really knew my grandmother used to sing this song, I'm going to stay on the battlefield till I die. And the other part of that song that people don't really sing is I'm going to treat everybody right till I die. And that's me. Like, that's a part of my lived practice. I'm going to treat everybody right till I die. And if I can't treat you right, then we don't need to be having this, you know, we just no need No conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I tend to find hope is with young folks, because I feel like 
you know, they still got some learnings to do and that the opportunity is still there, right? But when I am in spaces and the default is meanness or to be unkind, mm-hmm. um, it's frustrating. It's mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But as you said, I think it does relate back to feeling as though we don't have power. Um, and that is a way in which some folks find they can get their power, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know a Black woman who hasn't experienced deep pain and grief from another Black woman causing harm to her. And, you know, that's just a fact. And also inside this same conversation, I, I do know so many Black women who are just my people, you know, like uh, part of the definition, in, in fact, of womanism is not a separatist, except periodically for times of health. Like that's a part of the definition. And there are there are times when I really will isolate and retreat just to my people, you know, the only people that know where I am right now is, you know, are the people who can hold me and see me as both brilliant and broken at the same time. And those, those two versions of my identity don't cancel each other out. I can be both. And also a part of my womanist praxis is intentionally searching for that. You know, I'm really on an intentional mission to find and to lift and support the voices of other Black women who mean it when they say, I love and I support Black women. Part of the definition, loves women, sometimes sexually, sometimes non-sexually. Loves men, sometimes sexually, sometimes non-sexually. And that isn't even about bisexuality. It's not, you know, about that at all. It's about, you know, like loves Black women, loves them and wants to support them and see them and witness them and take care of them. Same thing with Black men and other gender it's the part of the troubling the definition of womanism and its origin is that it wasn't as gender as inclusive as it should have been because it was very binary women and men. But loves loves black people means it seriously, right? And so that is who I'm calling in, you know, when I'm calling on the womanist or the black feminist who have a deep womanist ethic. That's that's who I mean. And when the mean girls show up, I'm like, oh, sorry. You're, you might be at the wrong place. <laughs> you, you can't sit with us, but that's because you chose You don't to want to, for real. You yeah. don't want to sit with us. So I also think it's very beautiful how you dream. You mm. are someone that dreams so big, and you talk about conscious stillness as Black women. Mm. And how does one even begin to pursue conscious stillness when we exist within a system structured to extract our labor as black mm-hmm. women. Yeah, it's hard. On top of that, you know, I'm going to be little woo-woo for a second. I'm also Capricorn, hey, hey. you know, so, and I'm true to it. You know, I have to fight with myself about step one, step two, step three. I'm a strategy girl. I mean it. And, and I'm about getting my money. So that is, you know, both a part of my nature and a trauma response to being existing in this capitalist society that I have years and years and years of my life where I felt deep grief and guilt about any time where I found myself doing nothing. You know, I didn't know how to take days off. I didn't really take real vacations. I used to say this all the time. I'm the CEO and the janitor of this corporation. If I'm not working, then no one's working, which means that we're going to be hungry. And then 
while still in deep poverty, living in Harlem, New York, you know, with the pitter patter of drama outside of my window on a daily basis, I did have this revelation that if I kept going in this direction in this lifetime, I was never actually going to experience whatever my imagination of success was, whatever my imagination of peace was, whatever my imagination of freedom was. And so I, I needed to try it out and see if sitting down somewhere could help me to become whoever it was that I needed to become in order to see that. And it was hard for me, you know, it, it was, I'm saying this because I, I, I'm not naive enough to talk about dreaming as a tool for radical resistance inside of a capitalist system and, you know, in society and, and not understand that everybody can't just take a nap in the middle of the day. Everybody can't just go to the park and swing in the middle of the day. And, and also there is this part of me that wants to say, but you have to, you know, you have to, you, you have to wake up early maybe and create that space for yourself, or you have to go to bed late maybe and create that space for yourself. I do feel it important for the contextualization of where I was in my life at the time to say that I was poor <laughs> and struggling a bit. And there's a McDonald's two blocks away from where I lived and I had to go that way to get the train. And there was this young lady, this young Latina girl that worked there all the time. And I would walk by there some days and think to myself, hard work actually is not going to save me because she certainly works harder than me. She certainly works harder than me. So that's the proof. So Ebony Janice, if you see that hard work and you've seen it in your lifetime, I've been working hard all my life, you know, from school onward, right? I see that working hard isn't actually going to pull me up out of this experience of poverty and of struggle and of disappointment and of discouragement and of unhappiness and of bitterness and, you know, and just the heaviness that this life puts on me. And I see that if it was going to work, this person right here would be the proof of it because she is here from sunup to sundown. So what if I tried this out? What if I tried out stopping in the middle of the day and instead of trying to work on another something else in my hustle time, like why don't I go around the corner to the park and just swing for a minute? And that seems so trivial and so frivolous, but the practice of it consistently is really what started to awaken things for me. I found that in the times when I would actually really rest and chill and do the, because I needed to create conscious stillness in order for me to be able to dream. Like that's the point of it. We can't get to our dreaming or think about our highest imagination if we're never still, if we're never really rested. If you go to sleep restless, you're not going to have high vibrational or like real, you know, actual dreams that aren't just terror and, you know, thinking, thinking yourself into like all, all the things you have to do tomorrow. So the conscious stillness that is required in order for me to be able to dream, I, I had to practice doing it in that dreaming. There were like just little clues for me, like as simple as send this email tomorrow. You know, it, it's such a subtle whisper in those moments and, or as big as this is the beginning of the shift for me, particularly financially um, in my businesses, as big as I know you started by saying that this was open to 
all women, but the truth is in deep integrity, this project is really just for black women. So ask the white women who already paid for this thing, if they will donate their money to the black woman that this was really for. And when I said that publicly, like the, the, my dreaming got me in deep integrity with my actual mission. When I said that publicly, it changed the game, like everything. And so it really, it really is a series of like something that feels very tiny that I just wouldn't have heard that whisper if I wouldn't have been practicing sitting down somewhere for five minutes. And my meditation time, when I started really meditating, my meditation time started with like 60 seconds and it was a struggle. Like just sit here, put the, put the phone on 60 seconds. And I would sit there and struggle. Like just don't just sit here 60 seconds. So yeah, so the these little tiny moments of practicing my stillness really made me available for the whispers that I believe spirit had to guide me in the right direction. And of course, my experience, there there is, you know, all kind of privilege inside of that. I'm from a family where I'll never be hungry or homeless. So if I would have failed, I could have went to my mama's house. And so I encourage people, particularly people of color, to to figure out what is your privilege. Do you have a homegirl that you know no matter what she's gonna hold you down? Do you have a family that you know no matter what you you won't be hungry? If you don't have any of those things, you have any any support inside of community, like and or can we build and co-create community where if it comes down to it, you know you can slide into somebody's DMs, whatever, whatever. What does that look like? And and so that that's really kind of how I speak to that, the beginning of that journey at the very least. What are you currently dreaming about? Mm, making love. <laughs> making love, which is a which is a big deal because I love black men so much. <laughs> <laughs> I love black men so much and um and I desire to be in intimate, beautiful, sweet communion with um, a black man, but yeah, so that's what I'm dreaming about. I'm dreaming about making love. Um, and I, and I do mean sex, but also I'm talking about, you know, just creating something beautiful in the world with a black man. To that end, what does it mean for you to have a soft life? Softness for me is really about a more regulated nervous system. Instead of walking around feeling like the heaviness or the tightness of anxiety all day long and or even responding from my angst or my fear or, you know, even out of my trauma, I'm what I call seated. You know, I'm sitting down in my body and I get to I get to respond from that place or I get to think from that place or I get to dream from that place, imagine from that place. And that really is a lot of, you know, that's my mental health journey. That's, you know, therapy. That's having a group of friends who are willing to, you know, invest and participate energetically in a, a different Ebony Janice, Ebony, you know, than maybe who they met originally. Um, that's having real, 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 real boundaries, you know, with all people on the entire planet and being, being radically vulnerable too. That is not easy, you know, particularly I think for black women who haven't historically had a safe space to be that kind of vulnerable, but I demand it, you know, and it, including my dad, my dad has a heavy voice and my entire life, that's how my dad can talk, you know, really hard sometimes. And I will just say to my dad, dad, I don't like it when you talk to me like that. And he'll be like, I'm, you know how I am. 
I understand that, but you can't be that way with me anymore because I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. And it really is just this like, I know how it feels when I'm sitting down and anything that triggers me to feel like I got to get up out of my seat, then I need to, then that's the way I start maneuvering, like navigating, like how do I get back to my seat or who possibly has to go from my space in order for me to get back into my seat? That's not easy all the time, but that's the work I think of softness is, you know, learning what that feels like and then doing the work to stay there or go back to there or return to there. I guess I wonder why then softness is so often conflated with taking care of men or dare I even say fixing men um and how can we break away from that especially as black women no just cut that shit out I don't think that has anything to do I think that people just decided like oh yeah I need a soft woman well I don't know what that got to do with me I I mean I I see it you know the the story of the feminine woman and the all of that, you know, but it's a, I think it's just another thing, honestly, that a androcentric patriarchal, you know, society does takes anything that really is for the betterment of women and tries to figure out a way to water it down so that it can somehow benefit them. And, you know, by them, I mean men and, and also the ways that, that women participate in that too, because that's part of the reason why I always try to be very intentional when I define what I mean when I'm talking about softness, because there are a lot of women who have, I think, kind of conflated, you know, like luxurious feminine, this supposed archetype of femininity, you know, laying around doing nothingness, which is cool. I like it, you know, enjoy yourself, but we're not talking about the same thing. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Can we talk about Ronald though? Because the yes, way you talk please. about this man, Ronald, and how he just he held you just makes my heart burst. Because yeah. in so many ways, you are ready for that again. I mm-hmm. feel I actually was in a seriously committed relationship with a beautiful man from Mali after the relationship with Ronald. So Ronald, for context, for those listening. Um, I talk about him in the book, in the chapter in Pursuit of Softness, because he's really, in a lot of ways, the beginning of my softness journey. And it's funny that you originally got to this by saying, how did men make it about them? Because the beginning of my softness journey really was a man taking care of me, you know, not even in the sense of like paying my bills or anything like that, but just witnessing me, you know, just really thinking about what did I need and Like I didn't have to think about taking care of us because he was thinking about how to take care of us. And 
I have been in relationships with a lot of men who were depending on my strength. And that's cute. And by cute, I mean not cute at all. Not cute. <laughs> not cute. Not cute at all. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I want to be strong when I'm strong, but also I'm a little baby. <laughs> Somebody wrap me in swaddling clothes and rock me. <laughs> I mean, I would love to know how you unburdened yourself from this notion that black women are here to save everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to save anybody. I'm tired. Yeah, that's it. I just was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Shout out to Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, and and just think about how many years ago she said that. And here we are still in 2023, still feeling that kind of exhaustion, particularly as black women. And I think that that I just was tired. You know, I just felt very exhausted from, you know, we can hear things as black women. We can hear the statistics. We can hear the, you know, the sayings and the isms. And at some point we got to be like, you know, even though that's true, even though that's true, enough is enough (laughs) for me. You know what? If, if the revolution has to start with me saying I ain't got it to do, (laughs) then that's the way that it needs to start. And then also I'm just crystal clear that a lot of this journey, um, it's not a love and light wellness journey, but it is a wellness journey too. At the same time, it's, it's, you know, me as an individual doing deep healing work, you know, ongoing forever and ever, like I'm on this forever journey. And so some of that started with, you know, the origin, where's, what's the origin story really for me personally, of being a strong black woman, one word, as Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes would call it. And that's inside my family and in the church. And so if I could start, if I could start doing the work of unburdening myself from that title inside my family in the church, which is huge work to do, you know, forever and ever is huge work to do. If I could do that, then how much more, how much easier is it for me to do it in the world for me? Because if I could tell my mama, no, I can certainly tell Bradley in accounting, hell no. (laughs) You know, it's, that's just a real thing. Too real. But then this goes into why it behooves black women to unburden themselves from respectability politics and can you define what those are and how you subsequently have unburdened yourself from them? Yeah, respectability politics are essentially a set of standards and ideas that someone, we could talk about the someone in a second, but someone has said this is what it means to be respectable or to be respected or to be received. Um, Assimilation, of course, is a part of that, right? Like so that we can just merge ourselves and meld ourselves into acceptable and respectable society. And so the politics of that is to judge and critique anything that is outside of those standards or those ideas. And, you know, we, we do that. I'm saying we, because, um, because all black people in a global white supremacist society, you know, James Baldwin said the house is on fire, even everybody's inhaled the smoke. We have at the very least inhaled this smoke as well. So we are also complicit in the violence that we participate in amongst ourselves and that we are experience on a daily basis. 
and we could talk about where where those standards come from. You know, a lot of the elders have uh, unfortunately upheld those standards. In fact, to the beginning of this conversation about mean Black women, a lot of them are participating in this idea of respectability politics. And some of their frustrations are because we get to be nappy headed and they couldn't be. We get to be, you know, uh, shapely and let our clothes fit us the way that they fit us. And they didn't get to be. We get to maybe even be booty out and they didn't get to be. We get to be hoes and they didn't get to be. Right. And so what and whatever that is, you know, fill in the blank for whatever is the things that we get to do that they didn't get to be. And so the the respectability that they had to buy into or, and they felt like it was important for them in order to survive and or in order to foot push the race forward. I have deep empathy for that and I understand that. And I also have deep gratitude for it, which I do say in the book at some point, thank you for every single one of my elders that had to wear their hair straight, that had to wear their blouses buttoned up to their neck that, you know, thank you for you know, the sacrifice of that, because it is a sacrifice if that's not the truth of your authenticity or who it is that you actually are. And also, because you did, I don't have to. Isn't that the mother freaking point? You know, I actually have never really been a respectable Negro. I love this for you. I love this for you. Yeah. And I don't honestly know where that comes from. In a lot of ways, I can't really trace it. There are some versions of me that certainly did did have like a like ooh you know a a pearl clutching moment like ooh girl that's a lot <laughs> you know that's on ten maybe bring it down to a five you know today but I've I've never code switched put that on my tombstone and I've never you know I I don't know why I've just never been like. Oh, I want to be this. I don't know because I'm from Sandusky, Ohio, which is this predominantly white when I was growing up, predominantly white, um, really no kind of really no middle class, uh, well, working class for sure. But like I, I have white friends who were like real rich, like own the beach rich. And I don't know how you own a beach, but they did. And then, you know, I have friends and family members who were like Section eight in welfare, you know. So to exist in that space of seeing both, you would almost imagine that I would have been, you know, talking a different way or trying to act a different way or trying to be something else to fit in or to be received or to be accepted. But I just I just didn't have it. I I want to maybe chalk it up to like, you know, reincarnation or something that I came <laughs> into this world like. I did all of the code switching I was going to do in past lives in this life. (laughs) I don't know. I don't really know because I did also grow up seeing, you know, my mom had a telephone voice and I I've seen it. I've I've seen it for sure and, and experienced it. And, but I just didn't have it. But I think what causes me to go even deeper into it is also, I believe a part of my healing journey is that whenever I recognize that I might be watering down something, I ask myself, why are you watering this down? You know, is this actually authentic? Do you mean this? And this isn't just, I'm not just saying this, this is really a thing that I do. If I ever am in a situation, I could be sitting on a panel and I could just observe myself. Like, what are you doing right now? What is your body doing? Is this real? Do you 
You know, is this how you really feel? Or are you trying to be something? Or are you trying to prove something? And I will literally just filter through that in my mind. And then the next thing I say, I will, I will, if I code switch, I will code switch deeper. I will start quoting Jay-Z or I will quote the color purple or I will get extra super black girl churchy. Like I will go deeper into my blackness because my intention of, or I feel like even maybe a part of my mission is to figure out a way to prove to all the black girls that you could be your authentic self and experience a measure of so-called success or just deep satisfaction because I know when I leave out of here that I showed up as Ebony Janice. And if y'all liked it, if you didn't, we're going to be okay. We're going to keep on breathing and that's perfectly fine. And the final thing to that is that I do also have some lived proof that burning bridges that led to places that I could not be actual Ebony Janice ain't never hurt me ever, never, never. The, the initial reaction to it may have been a little scary, right? Like, oh God, I know that that's the end of that relationship. Or I know that I'm not going to get hired for that job or I know whatever, whatever. When I was in my twenties, I, I got called in on through this temp agency to go to UPS to interview for this job as a recruiter. <laughs> And I had just blown out my hair. My hair was natural. I had just blown out my hair. It was pressed straight. And so, but it was last minute, like, can you go right now? So I get there, I do the interview. It's two people. I do this interview with these two people. And I'm I'm pretty certain that I'm going to get the job. And the end of the conversation, they ask me, is there anything else that you would like to ask or anything else that you would like to tell us about yourself? And I said, yes, I think it's important that you know that I never, ever wear my hair straight, ever. So if you hire me, I'm coming in here Monday with an Afro. And it's not even going to be a nice Afro. It's going to just be kind of smashed atop my head. And I just need you to know that. And one of the people there was a black woman and she just fell out laughing and she was like, girl, get out of here right now. And I did get the job. But the point is, I was willing to like not get that job if it meant that when I showed up Monday and they was like, wait a minute, did she trick us? Like, Why did she show up with this straight hair to the interview? And she showed up Monday with this little situation on her head. This is I'm coming Monday with the situation. I just want y'all to know that. And so there is risk in that. And I really needed that job, but I never, ever want to compromise Ebony Janice in any situation. And that's just, it's just a thing that I've continued to practice throughout my life. Like, can I be even more me here? And if I can't, then that is messaging for me that this might not be the place for me to be. Like, even, even like, if I want to be super spiritual about it, like, Maybe that's God telling me, if I can't be me here, that that's God's way of telling me, oh, this isn't where for you to be. And if I can be me here, then that may be God's way of telling me like, yeah, rest easy here. You can be yourself. I mean, it is just so beautiful how you tell everyone from jump, my name is Ebony Janice. There's no nicknames, no nothing. You gonna say my whole name and that's just gonna be it. And I just love that so much as someone who also has a challenging name <laughs> um but i think that it's hard when people want to just make your name or your being um into something that it isn't and so i just respect you immensely just how you can be willing to forego certain things like you're saying like even though you really really needed that job you're willing to kind of forego it if you couldn't come to the job with the situation on your head, you know? And I'm curious about 
what it means to you to just exist in a body that is so policed, right? From our names to what we wear. You're very deep in that practice, but how would you suggest someone start the practice of just beginning just to relinquish all of that? Mm -hmm. I was basically saying something earlier about sick and tired of being sick and tired, Annie Lou Hamer, Mm -hmm. you know? I just feel like I got sick and tired of hating myself, you know, mm-hmm. of judging myself, of holding myself together, of, you know, piecing myself into spaces that, you know, can I fit here? Can I fit here? And because this is forever journey. I spent a couple months last year, I think, in Accra and in Ghana and one day I went out with this, like, um, like kind of my stomach was showing a little bit. And at the end of the day, I got home and I was just thinking, because I'm always reflecting on, you know, this is really a thing that I think often, like, how am I existing? Am I good? Am I happy? Am I well? And I thought about the day and I thought, I didn't suck my stomach in one time today. And that feels, that seems so simple. And how huge is that, you know, at the same time? that there was this space that I existed in where I didn't at any moment in the day feel like I needed to hold my stomach in. And at which point, once I have that experience, now I demand that experience. Like now I know this is possible. Now this must be possible always. I'm not going back to sucking in my stomach everywhere I go. So there's, you know, it's Ghana, of course. Like, so I understand why that's possible for me here. But now it's a standard. Now the standard has been raised for me about how I can feel in my body. And so now I'm just on this mission to feel that way always. And anything that compromises that, I'm going to call it out. You know, if I, if I go to my, if I go to see my family and somebody says, oh, you look like you're gaining weight. I'm going to say, you don't realize how violent that is. I don't care if it's my 99 year old auntie, you know what I'm saying? You don't realize that's violent to like talk about my body that way. And now everybody's going to be uncomfortable because I'm not about to be uncomfortable by myself. I'm not going to do it because I know what it feels like to exist somewhere where my body can just be doing whatever it's doing. And that's perfectly fine. So I think that that's a a major part of it is in these like little slivers of time where I've experienced softness or I've experienced my body being safe or where I've experienced, you know, beautiful relationship, mutual admiration and respect with other black women. It becomes a, it's a possibility. So now it's a standard. And now I will not ever, ever compromise for anything or any reason, shape, form, or fashion, right? And I, after Ronald, I was never, ever in another relationship or situation that didn't hold me as fully as Ronald. Now this is the standard. And now I expect that that is the kind of experience that I will either have and or if I ever come up against something that is contrary to that, I would be like, oh, I'm crystal clear that that's not a thing for me because I know that this is possible and I'm only willing to accept it in my body and my life and my experiences just in general. And, and I really, really enjoy myself, you know? So I, I enjoy spending time with myself, figuring out, you know, who it is that I actually am. In pursuing authority, you talk about why a citation is important. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But it's also frustrating because we live in a moment where our intellect, especially as Black women, has become content on these platforms. And then the content becomes disseminated and our voices become removed from that. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I feel like it's not even that people don't know. Like people know what they're doing. They just choose not to credit you. Um, how have you had to assert your authority? Just like online, I think in general. Yeah, you know what it is. <laughs> the same way that I will stop the conversation to correct somebody about my name every single time. I'm going to just keep on talking about y'all need to stop quoting me and start citing me. Stop saying the words that I said without saying my name. Because when you erase that dash Ebony Janice at the end or that quotation mark Ebony Janice in the year, you know, however you want to cite it, you're erasing my mama, my grandma, you know, my intellectual lineage. I just don't let the moment pass without saying, you know, where this came from. So there's that, like I will call it out. And then another way that I try to show how important this is, is by me. I I cite so intentionally. I've tried to practice the citation every single time, every single time, every single time I say it. And it it's really not that hard, honestly, to say I was having a conversation with, or as such and such always says, it's really not that hard, but it, but when it's not a part of your practice, and and your practice is to just say words and to not acknowledge or honor your intellectual lineage, it seems hard to do it when it's time for you to do it. But I think it's always a time for citation. If I I say this all the time, if I scroll your timeline, because I think the timeline is is credible, we've learned so much from each other in fact in these spaces. So because it's a credible place to learn, I'm not trying to colonize the space by saying you need to be doing APA, MLA, you know, Chicago citation in your captions. But if I scroll your timeline and I don't see nobody's name but you, I'm going to ask some questions. Who are you learning from? Where did you get this from? You didn't think this thought on your own with with your brain, just by yourself, you didn't, no matter, no matter how brilliant I am. And your boy is brilliant. <laughs> no matter how brilliant I am, I I have thought of, I have been very divinely inspired. There are things that I only know because spirit revealed it. And guess what? I'm a sight spirit when I say it then. I'm gonna cite my grandmothers. I'm gonna cite my elders, my ancestors. There, there must be because citation makes me more credible. If I'm just running around here saying words and y'all like, where did you get that from? That's a good question. But if I'm saying words and I'm saying that even if it was just divinely inspired, spirit revealed this to me. I know this because that that enhances my credibility. And again, I'm not trying to colonize the space, but I am suggesting that it it helps us to be in deep integrity and in community with one another. When I know that I can trust you with my intellectual thoughts and with my intellectual lineage, and when you know that you could trust me in return, Black women's contribution in general is so easy to wipe us out of the conversation. People talk about hip hop all the time and act like Black women don't have nothing to do with it. Act like the reason that that infamous party happened in the boogie down wasn't because the sister paid for the party in the first place and asked her brother to DJ. Like totally erase the sister out of the conversation. 
it's so easy to just erase us from the conversation. So it then becomes revolutionary when we decide we're not going to erase ourselves and we're not going to let other people erase us. I, I try to practice that and improve it by making sure that I do it, you know, as, as ethically and intentionally as possible. On today's show, you heard Sanikiwe Stephanie Dilaweo in conversation with Ebony Janice. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. This has been a Well and Good Studios production. This episode was produced by Taylor Camille and edited by Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme music was created by Malin Lakomsky and Matt DiDomenico. Our show art was designed by Jenna Gibson and Karina Masonette. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.